Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, uh, good to be back here. Uh, we have a packed episode. Uh, we're actually going to come out twice this week. Um, sorry for those of you who have missed us. We're back here with you. We love you. And so, Ken, I guess we should start in Washington, D.C., of all, you know the whole smorgasbord we have to choose from this week. Let's start with the federal case before Judge Tanya Chutkin in Washington, D.C. Uh, Donald Trump had asserted that he had various immunities to being even tried in this case related to his having been president at the time of many of the acts having been committed. Uh, Judge Shutkin ruled against him on that. He appealed. And now the case is paused pending that appeal. And the, and the reason is that he's asserting, again, that he has a right not merely not to be convicted. He has a right not to be tried. And so that needs to be resolved before they can even start the trial. That's right, Josh. So usually a judge's orders in the middle of a case can't be appealed normally because they're not a final appealable order. So usually if you ask the court to dismiss something and then the court says no, you've got to wait to the very end of the case to appeal that. But occasionally there's a set of circumstances where uh, the argument is that not only do you have the right to win, you have the right not to be tried in the first place. And Trump's immunity arguments are basically appeals to an imagined right not to be on trial at all. And so when uh, the court rejected those and he appealed them to the D.C. Uh, circuit, he argued that I have a right to appeal this immediately and you should stop the case because I have a right not to be on trial at all. And Judge Chutkin issued a brief order basically agreeing. She said, OK, yes. I mean, this is a situation where the issue before the appellate court is whether or not you should be on trial at all, whether this should be proceeding at all. And that's exactly the type of issue where the lower court shouldn't go forward. So Judge Chutkin agreed to stay that case, uh, just the, the main progress of the case. She made it clear she was reserving jurisdiction over things like whether or not he violates the gag order that is uh, newly uh, upheld by the higher court. But for now, uh, it has stayed. And so that means that there isn't a new trial date yet. She's basically paused a whole bunch of deadlines. And the appeals court is being extremely expeditious about this appeal. I mean, we got the order that says when the various parties have to file briefs and over the objections of Trump's attorneys who said, are you really going to make us work over the holidays on this stuff? The answer the appeals court said was yes. There's a filing that's due on December 23rd, another on the 30th, another on January 2nd. And so it looks like the appeals court is looking to rule quite quickly, like at an extremely fast pace for a federal court. Yes, and Trump's attorneys were actually a little bit grumpy about this, accusing uh, uh, special counsel Jack Smith of more or less not caring about their holidays. Uh, and <laughs> the court was less than uh, blown away by that argument. So uh, the court said, sure, you, you want a fast appeal? You got one. File your brief by uh, December 23rd and then the opposition the next week and then the reply by January 2nd, which is lightning fast for the Court of Appeals, particularly on issues this big. Uh, so it seems as if this appeal of this issue of immunity is going to go very, very fast in a way that could conceivably, at least as to the Court of Appeals proceedings, not significantly delay things in the trial court. Just to, to walk through that a little bit in terms of the timing, we might have a ruling from the appeals court sometime in mid-January? Well, sure. They have to schedule an oral argument 
in, which I would expect would be in January and at that pace, probably early January. And then we have to wait for them to rule. But uh, I would not be at all surprised if the whole thing is resolved by the end of January. And then Trump can appeal. He can seek an in- bank rehearing. He can appeal to the Supreme Court. Exactly. Does that further delay the case? It could. Now, just before this happened, before Judge Chutkin agreed to stay the case, before the Court of Appeals issued this lightning fast schedule, uh, Jack Smith did an interesting thing. Uh, He filed something saying, basically, I think the Supreme Court should take this immediately uh, because of the important issues involved and uh, how, uh, you know, central it is to the upcoming election and all these things. He said, basically, skip the uh, United States. It's Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit goes straight to the Supreme Court. You know, we'll, we'll give Alito and Thomas their opportunity to vote for Trump and let's get this thing over with and get to trial. Now, it was a creative uh, decision. It was also sort of a, a power move, a real uh, signifier of how confident he is in the law here. I think now that the Court of Appeals has issued such a fast schedule that it's unlikely the Supreme Court will do that. It, there doesn't seem to be a burning need for them to resolve it that quickly. And in general, you know, if the Supreme Court can let a lower court handle it, they will. Mm hmm. Once there's a ruling from the appellate court, I mean, then there will be a more ordinary course appeal to the Supreme Court. The question is, you know, I this panel, I assume we think the panel is likely to uphold Judge Chutkin at the appellate level. I think so. There is not a significant segment of the legal community that thinks that Trump's immunity arguments are good ones, uh, with the possible exception of Lena Haba. Uh, So uh, (laughs) I, I think the general consensus is it's going to be upheld. And there, there's not much sentiment that the Supreme Court is going to reverse it either. The bigger uh, risk in terms of proceeding against Trump is delay. Right. So that if the Supreme Court chews on it for too long or you know, decides to take it, that that could uh, create a significant delay uh, in the trial proceedings and you could lose that March trial date. But that's a big question, right? Assuming that the appeals court upholds Judge Shutkin, is the Supreme Court likely to be interested in hearing this case? Well, again, I think you likely have two hard Trump partisans and Thomas and Alito who might, but I doubt you've got the votes to take it at all, uh, much less uh, overturn it, unless the D.C. Court of Appeals basically uh, expresses itself in very broad terms and reaches conclusions or, or uses logic the Supreme Court doesn't like. The whole question I'm getting at here is, is this going to prevent us from having a March trial date as scheduled in this case? I think for a number of reasons, and and this is one of them, that uh, it's, it's probable the March trial date will slip some. I've always thought that it was likely that it would slip some. It's pretty rare for a federal case to go on its first trial date. But I'm thinking more like a few months rather than uh, to never. The reason it would slip due to this is I assume, you know, even though Judge Chuckin hasn't rescheduled it yet, there's stuff that the parties are supposed to be doing pre-trial that will eventually get interfered with if you have a stay on all the proceedings in the case. And so if this gets handed back to her by the end of the month. I don't know. Are they on pace to actually be ready to go to trial in March? Is that one of the issues? That would be one of the issues. Uh, Things are slowing down, that the pretrial motions and things have not been resolved. The parties haven't, you know, done all the things they need to with each other to resolve exhibit lists and jury instructions and all that, you know, motions and limine and all that type of stuff you get getting ready for a trial. 
And uh, so it would not surprise me if we lose a few months. But then there's another issue here. There's another case working its way through the courts that the Supreme Court has taken that isn't Trump's own case, but that might be a reason why this case would be delayed. This is an appeal related to a more ordinary January 6th case with the obstruction of an official proceeding. This is the law that many of the rioters have been charged under, uh, that, that they broke the law by obstructing the official proceeding, the count of the votes, and they've been, many of them have been convicted on that law. This is a law that originates in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which is a securities reform law, which is a little bit of a surprising place to have found this criminal offense. And indeed, that's the argument here, that basically that this is about things that are, you know, have to do with things like presenting false evidence and, and things of that nature, and that it wasn't really meant to have to do with if there's, you know, a riot in the Capitol building, um, and that it was excessively creative to charge people under this law. And Donald Trump has also been charged under this law. Sure. And now the Supreme Court is going to consider whether the government has been construing that law too broadly. So first of all, does this put a lot of the January 6th convictions at risk? Some of them. Uh, so the, the law is uh, the obstruction of justice um, section, uh, Title 18, United States Code, Section 1512. One of the different uh, theories for obstruction of an official proceeding. Uh, like you said, its, it's uh, origin is uh, after the Arthur Anderson scandal and during one of the times when uh, Congress pretends to care about the sorts of crimes that white guys in blue suits uh, commit, created this. And the argument has always been it's not really intended for uh, blue collar stuff like rushing in and breaking into the literal Congress building and interrupting a proceeding. It's intended for stuff like uh, evading the investigation and lying to Congress and, and things like that. So the Supreme Court accepted cert on the question of whether or not this law extends to acts unrelated to investigations and evidence. Uh, and that would certainly have an impact on a number of congressional uh, January 6th cases. Uh, now, Trump is also charged with that violation. It's a little murkier as to him, because as to him, there's a mix of different things. Some of it is arranging for false information to be submitted to Congress, which would seem to satisfy the narrower view of the statute that people are arguing. But there's also elements of it that involve like, you know, trying to use the riots to influence Mike Pence and, and slow down the proceeding. That seems to be the more kind of broad, rough and ready interpretation that people are arguing for. Uh, so that could have an impact on his case. Uh, the question is, what is Judge Chutkin going to do about that? You know, it would be within her discretion to delay the trial waiting for the Supreme Court to interpret this section of the law. And the risk of going forward with the trial is that you could have a situation where after trial, the Supreme Court interprets uh, Section 1512C in a way that kind of overtakes what happened at trial and you have to throw out uh, potentially a conviction for obstruction. So uh, that's a, a real issue and uh, it's one that could complicate the trial day. Well, so regarding that, that issue of, you know, if you proceed with the trial and then there's a ruling that basically overcomes at least one of the charges against Trump, would only that conviction be tossed if it had been issued? Or would Trump's people be basically able to say, because you charged him under this law that he, you know, that the Supreme Court now says he didn't actually violate, you got to bring in all of this evidence that wasn't relevant to certain other charges and the whole thing. Basically, does he get a whole new trial if that happens? Or is it merely that they would throw out a specific conviction? Well, at least you'd lose the 1512 
see conviction, the obstruction conviction. You you likely also, depending on how the evidence goes in, lose the conspiracy to uh, obstruct an official proceeding conviction. Beyond that, uh, yes, I would expect Trump to argue that, that the evidence about the obstruction has so infected the proceedings uh, that it's uh, requiring the whole thing to be reversed. But I expect the government to counter that a lot of the same evidence is relevant uh, to the fraud on the United States charge. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see what the government does, how they decide to handle this dilemma and approach it. I mean, isn't isn't there a truth to it being inflammatory? I mean, isn't one of the key reasons that Jack Smith wanted to charge the case this way, that it allows you to bring in all this evidence about the riot itself? Yeah, absolutely. It takes it from being a case about the submission of, of false paperwork and the maneuvering around the electroslates and that sort of thing to being a case that is in large part about this riot that, you know, so alarmed so many people. I, I mean, I guess my question is, does would he have a good argument for a new trial in that situation? I think he would have a, a very colorful argument, a decent argument, and it really depends on how Jack Smith decides to put in the evidence and what theories he decides to pursue at trial, because he may, in effect, narrow his presentation uh, based on his interpretation of how the Supreme Court is likely to interpret uh, the obstruction statute. And then the other thing is, unlike the issue about presidential immunity, I, am I right in my sense that this is this is very much a live question that the Supreme Court might, in fact, significantly narrow this interpretation of this law? It could, yes. So uh, this particular there, there are number of different obstruction laws, but this particular one, uh, the Supreme Court could plausibly decide that it is more related to sort of traditional perjury fraud type obstruction of proceeding and less, you know, uh, charging into a building, breaking windows and screaming at people obstruction of proceeding. So uh, that's a perfectly plausible uh, interpretation, uh, one that uh, would have more impact on some of the January 6 people than it would on the vast run of cases out there. And so all of which is to say, is Judge Chutkin likely to look at the situation and say, I do think it's best to delay this case until after we get this ruling, especially because, you know, they're, they're already, as you suggest, going to have to push the trial date back from March. I don't know how many weeks that is pushed back. But once you're into April and May, we expect the Supreme Court to rule on this case about obstruction of an official proceeding by June. So you wouldn't have to wait that much longer to have the ruling before you start the trial. Right. And then you, you're basically going to trial immediately before the election. With uh, If the trial is anticipated to be a couple of months, uh, you're really pushing right up against the door there. I think that Judge Chutkin has shown herself to be relatively careful about this sort of thing, not wanting to make uh, appealable errors when she can avoid them, uh, wanting to uh, preserve the process. That's kind of shown, for instance, in her uh, decision to stay the proceedings, uh, which is probably the right call under the law. So it wouldn't surprise me if she looks at this and after the parties brief it, decides that this is one of the things that justifies uh, a delay. That still leaves time for the trial before the election. As you know, it's just before the election. Yes. But I mean, because one of the there's this sort of fiction 
going on around here that, you know, this is like any other criminal case, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that I assumed that the Supreme Court was not going to take Jack Smith up on his request to extraordinarily take this up right away, because in theory, this is just some case with some defendant. The stuff that got rushed through to the Supreme Court while he was president, they've been less inclined to rush those sorts of things. Um, But so it still does just leave time for this case to not only start, but be completed before Election Day. It does, although, you know, you you have to figure that uh, sometimes the Supreme Court finishes its cases very late in June. Uh, you need some time to absorb the case and what it means and then brief and argue what impact that has on what you can present at trial or not. It could conceivably blow a very big hole in uh, Jack Smith's case and dramatically limit what he's allowed to do and the theories he's allowed to pursue. Uh, So you're probably not talking about going to trial in June. You're probably talking about going to trial in July or August. (laughs) So a two-month trial that might finish in October. Yeah. Exciting. An October surprise. Um, well, well, we'll watch that. Uh, there's one more um, area to do with Judge Shutkin's case that we should talk about, which is the gag order. She had issued the gag order. There was an appeal of the gag order. The appeals court that considered it has now ruled and they narrowed but did not throw out the gag order on Donald Trump. And, I, you know, weeks ago when we were talking about the initial gag order that had come down from Judge Chutkin, and we were surprised that it was vague and vague in a way that didn't look like it was going to hold up. And she ended up clarifying it at some point, but it was still maybe not as precise as one would have liked. Now, the the appeals court has issued a a very long ruling that makes the order a lot more specific and significantly more narrow, although it is still a a real and significant order that is once again restricting Donald Trump's speech. Yeah, this is uh, an important and big and sprawling order. One of the problems we've been having with all these, these gag order cases is that there's relatively little First Amendment authority on the subject, in part because so few people decide to appeal this type of thing or have the resources to do so or have the inclination to try to piss off the judge that's going to be hearing their trial. Uh, so it doesn't go to courts of appeal very often. Here, uh, the the D.C. Circuit uh, did a very thorough job, as you'd expect them to. They reviewed uh, extensive First Amendment history. They reviewed extensive authority on trial judges' power to set limits to protect uh, the right to a fair trial and the proceedings. And and they came out basically saying that, uh, first of all, they're going to hear the issue. They said, well, we're going to hear this on an interlocutory basis without waiting to the end of the case because... You know, this is a a separate issue. Uh, The judge has disposed of it, and it's something that's effectively unreviewable because if we wait to the end of the case, then he's been gagged this whole time. Uh, Then they talk about how courts do have a power and obligation to protect the process, and that means protecting the participants from undue outside influence that turns it into something other than uh, a proceeding where decisions are made based on evidence in the courtroom. Uh, So the, the test they wind up with is that a gag order has to be Uh, justified by sufficiently serious risk of prejudice to that trial process. It has to be the least restrictive alternative to addressing that risk of serious process. And it has to be narrowly tailored towards that risk. 
And so what they say here is, yeah, there, there's it's justified because Trump has this ability to drive harassment of witnesses and participants. He has the ability to, in effect, uh, launder his own communications to witnesses through the general public and through the media. So, you know, he can't call and threaten them directly, but he can do the same thing by making public statements. And because of that, you need to protect fear and intimidation of witnesses, staff, and so forth. But then they say, so, you know, Chutkin had a reason. There's an adequate record here to show that this was justified, but she made it too broad, uh, this, this infamous term target. What they say is that this has to be limited to prohibiting him from saying things about witnesses' participation in the case. So that's how they're going to narrow this targeting idea. So he can say that, you know, Mike Pence was a terrible vice president and a terrible person. And, you know, he, he got unreasonably upset about the movie Mulan, which is true. And all sorts of, you know, general <laughs> trash talk like that. But it, it's not that he can't prohibit that stuff unless he starts saying Mike Pence is going to come in and testify and he's going to lie. That's talking about his testimonial capacity, his participation in the case. That's the type of uh, attack and intimidation that the court can prohibit because it's directly connected to the case and the court's obligation to protect the proceedings. Similarly, uh, the court says that, yes, you can protect the court staff, Jack Smith staff, that type of thing, uh, from statements attacking them, but only attacks uh, that uh, are intended to or reasonably foreseeably might interfere with their participation, intimidate them from doing their job. So what you wind up with is the same concepts uh, prohibiting uh, threatening of witnesses and court staff, but it's limited to talking about witnesses in their capacity as witnesses and things that uh, are intended or reasonably likely to intimidate staff. I've seen a lot of grousing that this order is now not broad enough and that Trump is going to find his way around it a lot and say things that, well, I mean, the idea is that he's going to say things that interfere with the proceeding and that he'll be able to have plausible deniability. I think there's also an element of people are like, you know, they wanted a court to tell Trump to shut up and that they feel that this doesn't quite do enough of that. But I mean, does this is this order broad enough to have, you know, to provide real protection to the proceeding? Sure. If you've got a judge who is willing to enforce it and Judge Cutkin's attitude has suggested that uh, she is willing to do that. Uh, so I think that um, to the extent Trump tries to skirt around it by being cute, as he has definitely done in the past, that she's going to call him on it. And um, I, I think it has real teeth. I mean, the First Amendment is the First Amendment. It's not there for people's wish casting. And it's not surprising. And it's a good thing uh, that you've got a court of appeals addressing this gag order issue in a way requiring very specific, narrow restrictions on speech. It's the way it should be. Uh, you know, the you shouldn't be able to, in a criminal justice system, have very broad, vague limits on defendants being able to talk about their own case. And then in other gag order news, the gag order in New York in Judge Arthur Engeron's case, that gag order is back in effect and appeals court considered it and upheld Judge Engeron's imposition of that gag order. They're done taking testimony in that case. So I realize, you know, there's there's going to be a ruling uh, sometime early next year. Judge Engeron still has the case. But I assume the main purpose of the gag order to protect the proceeding at a time when witnesses are coming in and you don't want the witnesses to be intimidated, it feels almost moot at this point. 
Well, yes and no. Remember that the gag order in that case was really limited just to Trump trash talking the judge's staff, particularly his law clerk uh, that uh, Trump's uh, team saw as the perfect sort of liberal foil uh, that they could use to demonize and, and send their uh, people after. So uh, the gag order was really only about attacking that person. And what the Court of Appeals said is, yeah, you know, you're asking for the special emergency appeal. We're not going to give it to you because this is a really narrow order. Uh, it only applies to attacking this, you know, the staff. You can appeal it through normal channels on the normal schedule. Uh, we don't think this is the right way to do it. So it wasn't a endorsement of the gag order on its substance, whereas a First Amendment matter, it was more procedural. Yeah, we're not giving you special emergency relief here. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is now twice indicted. He was indicted some time ago in Delaware on this gun charge that he had purchased and possessed a gun at a time that he was a drug addict, which is against federal law, although, as, as we'll discuss, there's some question about whether that's actually good law. And there's, you know, parts of the country where appeals courts have decided that law is not enforceable, that it violates the Second Amendment. And then now you have the new, more serious indictment that's come down for him in Los Angeles, the tax indictment. Now, when there was supposed to be this plea agreement for Hunter Biden, he was going to plead guilty to some misdemeanor crimes related to not filing taxes. The plea fell apart. And as one might expect, the more serious tax charges have now been brought out since they're planning to go to trial. They brought felony charges. So there's a number of years in which he failed to file, failed to pay. And then in 2018, they also alleged that he, that he filed a false return, that he made certain willful false statements. And those are, those are felonies. Um, and so I guess, first of all, before we talk about all the surrounding politics, how serious is this tax indictment for Hunter Biden? How does this look compared to, you know, other tax cases that you might see that get charged as felonies? It's very serious, and it is a dramatic escalation of the original information that he was going to plead to with those two failure to file uh, misdemeanors. Uh, you know, you remember back then when we talked about that and that deal falling apart. We talked about how the question would be how much worse he would get hit with. And the answer is a lot. So this is a $1.4 million tax evasion, allegedly. It includes not just the misdemeanor failures to file, but felony uh, tax evasion and false statement claims. You know, it, it, it goes from something where it was plausible that he'd spend minimal time, if any, in jail and, and quite possibly get probation, uh, which was a recommendation to a situation where he's facing a few years in jail, potentially under the guidelines. And the detail uh, of the indictment is what's pretty shocking. A lot of the time, tax cases are fairly formulaically indicted, uh, not without a whole lot of detail. This is very much one of those speaking indictments we've talked about before, Josh. This is like anything we ever saw uh, from Robert Mueller or from Jack Smith is just a hugely detailed evidentiary indictment going through in brutal detail, not just where the income came from and not just uh, how it was spent on, you know, a very vivid lifestyle, but uh, also all the things showing that he knew he was evading taxes and knew he was doing crooked things. Uh, one thing I, I think about the indictment is, is it's 
almost seems calculated on some level to dispel the notion that this is all about addiction. So this does not suggest to me this is somebody who was addicted and just didn't file tax returns and ignored it. This just really tries to paint him as persistently dishonest and uh, a con man over a long period of time. So this is this is really uh, this, this special counsel pulling out all the stops to show the very worst evidence of the stuff he did. Uh, it's pretty brutal. It, it's one of the most brutal tax indictments I've ever seen, I think, in terms of the level of detail about how crooked he was being. And so, I mean, to take one example, it's not a particularly lurid example, but it's a clear one about, you know, he, he knew that he hadn't filed the taxes and he knew he hadn't made the payments. Uh, they described that in March of 2018, his ex-wife texted him that she'd found their unfiled 2016 tax returns in the trunk of his car. And he wrote back to her and he said, those taxes are filed. Um, those were copies. And she writes him back saying that they, they're not copies. They still have the checks attached to them. <laughs> And so clear evidence, like he, he knew that he never sent this money in and he never sent these returns in. And it's also, it's a lot of money. I mean, he's, you know, in these years, he's typically making, you know, one, one and a half million dollars, two million dollars. The tax bills that are due are hundreds of thousands of dollars. They described that in April 2018, he had over a million dollars available in his individual and corporate bank accounts, and yet he did not pay any of his outstanding 27 tax liability, which was approximately $580,000. I mean, this just, you know, it looks to me... This looks to me like a serious tax crime. Maybe it's not typical that this goes to the sort of thing where you get felony charges, but it, you know, it feels like the sort of thing, if I were just designing the tax system, this is the sort of thing that you would face felony charges for doing, for not paying, for intentionally not paying these really large amounts of taxes that you know that you owe. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the thing about the tax system is that uh, the government really only has the resources or we've decided to pay only for the resources to go after a tiny, tiny percentage of people who do this type of thing. But this is the type of conduct that will get you potentially charged if they notice you and decide to pursue you. And this is the type of conduct that will get you charged with a felony and that will probably get you some jail time. Now, this this with, you know, one point four million dollars in loss is not like a 20 year type crime. It's a few years, uh, but uh, it is a jail time type crime and uh, it is quite serious. Uh, to turn and talk for a second about the gun charge, Hunter has made certain motions to throw that out. And, and I think that on le- at least one of these, he has a very strong argument, right? I mean, I, I remain confused about why they charged this at all. They have these tax crimes that look quite serious and this gun charge that seems like kind of bullshit. Um, and I realize gun charge is simpler, but like, why did they even bring this gun charge against Hunter? I think because they sort of, they had flagged it through this deal structure where he was going to acknowledge it but get diversion on it. And they felt that they could not then simply let it go. Having previously said you're going to have to, you know, acknowledge it, they felt that now that, okay, we're not doing a deal, we have to do something with it. Uh, Because you're right, it's it's a chicken shit charge. I mean, uh, it is rarely charged. It's usually charged only when in combination with something else. Uh, There are, you know, legions of people who have addiction problems with guns in America, and very, very, very few of these cases get charged, and it's usually where there's some X factor. Uh, So I I think that's it. I think it's it's the politics of it and the appearance of it. So as you said, uh, Hunter Biden this past week filed a very aggressive array of motions to dismiss 
in the gun case. And, you know, a motion to dismiss is not terribly unusual, but five of them is fairly unusual. So some of the arguments he's made is, first of all, that um, the charge is unconstitutional. So you may remember that we had this Fifth Circuit case that said that this law uh, about how you can't, you know, purchase or possess a gun while you're an addict uh, is unconstitutional under the Supreme Court's relatively new precedent saying basically that the Second Amendment prohibits uh, anti-gun laws except to the extent they reflect a tradition or heritage of the way things were regulated at the time of the founders. And, you know, the founders weren't stopping people from owning guns if they were addicts. I mean, Ben Franklin probably had 10 or 12 guns, and that dude was a total uh, addict. And so, wow, going negative on Ben Franklin. Yeah, well, you know, it's about time someone took a shot at the guy. Uh, so uh, their argument is that the Fifth Circuit says this is unconstitutional. They're right. So, and in addition, the false statement about being an addict is by law immaterial because the distinction is unconstitutional. So that's one attack. Another attack is basically that that diversion agreement uh, that he was supposed to get was enforceable and that uh, it waived these charges and prohibited them and the court should enforce it. And uh, they shouldn't be allowed to charge him with that because he agreed to the diversion agreement and the government agreed to it. And that um, all that stuff about whether or not the agreement was ambiguous in what it promised not to prosecute uh, that was all nonsense. It's not ambiguous. And even if it is, the ambiguity has to be uh, construed against the government, which f- drafted the agreement. Yeah. I'm a- am I also remembering correctly? There was some weirdness with back when we were before Judge Noreka in, in Delaware when they didn't get the plea agreement through. There was the plea agreement and the, and the diversion agreement. And technically, the judge didn't didn't even get to sign off on the diversion agreement. The And partly and she was complaining to some extent that they had stuck important provisions in that diversion agreement where she would technically not have any authority to review it in order to clean up the uh, the, the plea agreement re- uh, regarding the tax charges. And so does that support Hunter's argument here, where they're basically like the diversion agreement is merely an agreement between us and the government. The court never had to sign off on it. Right. Well, it, the idea is the government signed it. And so that's all that matters, because all we're trying to do is hold the government to it. Right. So it doesn't matter if I signed it or if the judge approved it. There were a lot of weird things in that deal that look very bad and sketchy and poorly designed in retrospect. You know, it's a type of deal that only holds together if everyone sticks with it and there's no dissent and that's not what happened. So another argument is here that, yeah, you should you should enforce the diversion agreement and dismiss this. Then there's more, though. We're not done yet. Uh, One argument is that this is based on politics, that it's selective and vindictive prosecution. Selective is when you prosecute someone for an impermissible reason, like their race or their exercise of the First Amendment right or something like that. Vindictive is when you do it in retaliation for exercising a procedural right, like filing a motion to dismiss or making an argument about the diversion agreement. Uh, So that's (laughs) one of his arguments. This is all politics. And then there's one that... um, this, this one is kind of my favorite in a way that special counsel David Weiss is improperly appointed. So he cannot <laughs> bring this charge wearing his special counsel hat because the special counsel regulations say that it's supposed to be someone from outside government and he's the U.S. attorney. He's not from outside government. Therefore, although he could have done the indictment wearing his U.S. attorney hat, once he put on his special counsel hat, he could no longer bring the indictment. 
Now, that's a little abstract to me and a little tricky as to causation because he could have brought it the same guy anyway. Also, it's not clear to me that Hunter Biden has standing to enforce that limit on appointing a special counsel within the special counsel regs. So you don't always have the authority to enforce the government's own regulations against them because that's the way government works. Uh, but it's another interesting argument here in a raft of them uh, from well, Hunter Biden. Isn't Could that be a preview of an argument that they will make in the tax case in Los Angeles? Because it, it, David Weiss is the U.S. attorney for Delaware, so he could have brought the charges in Delaware wearing his regular U.S. attorney hat, but he could not bring the charges in the in the Central District of California uh, as the U.S. attorney of Delaware. He needs the authority. He has a special counsel. So will that be – I mean, I realize there's still the standing question, but will that be a more substantive argument to be brought in this tax case in the future? I expect it will, and I expect that and the uh, selective and vindictive prosecution uh, arguments will be made in motions to dismiss here in Los Angeles. And so, I mean, the weird thing about this idea that I'm being selectively prosecuted is he's the president's son. Like, you have all of these political accusations out there that he's actually getting special treatment. And as you know, you describe the nature of this this extremely aggressive tax indictment and whatever you thought about the plea agreement that ultimately did not uh, come to full fruition this does not look like, you know, he doesn't look like he's getting that favorable treatment. But it's a little weird to say my father is the president and they're prosecuting me extra hard because my father is the president. I, I feel like it's going to be tough to get that argument to wash. Yeah. And selective and vindictive prosecution are, are very hard cases to make to begin with. You rarely see them succeed. He'd have to show here's someone else uh, similarly situated to me who did the same types of stuff. Uh, who didn't get prosecuted like this. And, and that's a high bar. But this is a hammer on him. Both of these cases are hammer on him. And it's kind of interesting to see people scramble to try to reconcile this with the idea that the fix is in for him. So you had Representative James Comer going on Jake Tapper and arguing that they're protecting him. And it was kind of comical watching Jake <laughs> Tapper try to keep a straight face saying, OK, they're so protecting him by indicting him. And exactly. Uh, I think that comes under the uh, it was necessary to uh, destroy the village to save it type of, uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're apparently they are indicting him in this rather brutal tax indictment to distract information away from him having done worse stuff. I'm, I'm not clear on that. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess the idea there is, I mean, because the, the, the other thing Hunter Biden has been up to lately is that he was subpoenaed to appear before a committee in the House of Representatives related to the, the impeachment inquiry that's ongoing related to the president. And there was a subpoena to appear in private for uh, basically a deposition. And his public response was, no, I'm happy to testify in a public hearing, but I'm not coming to your private proceeding, which you're not really allowed to do. Like there's a subpoena. You have to you have to comply with the subpoena. And so instead he goes and he gives this defiant press conference on the steps of the, the Capitol, um, drawing a whole bunch of attention to himself. And so the strategic argument here was generally that Republicans have been taking the results of these these interviews that happen behind closed doors and selectively leaking the contents of the interviews in a way that is misleading. Um, and that if you appear in public, you don't run that risk. It seems to me like that risk did not really apply to Hunter Biden because Hunter Biden should have taken the fifth in response to every question in the interview. So I don't know how you selectively leak the fact that he's taking the fifth if he's going to take the fifth every time. I mean, the news will be he took the fifth and people will draw whatever inferences from that they want. But, you know, that the basically Hunter Biden should not be giving answers that they can selectively release as part of his criminal strategy, right? Like, you don't, you don't want to go before Congress and answer questions about the thing you've been criminally charged about. 
No, you don't under normal circumstances. But bear in mind that Hunter Biden's team has consistently taken very aggressive approaches that you normally wouldn't take in the, under these circumstances because they have a unique situation. They've got a situation where their guys are already being charged with crimes, but in the event that Donald Trump is elected president, he's likely to get charged with a lot worse and a lot crazier stuff. And so what they're really doing, I think, is using every situation that comes up as ways to get ahead of that, to get intel on it, to undermine it and that type of thing. And I, I think that approach was all about that. It was all about calling attention to the sort of the the disingenuous nature of the Republican inquiry, maybe daring them to charge him with obstruction, uh, to, to, which which could happen uh, and and trying to undermine them and not play into their narrative. But like he's committing a new crime. He is. Uh, and they could ask uh, the Department of Justice, and it's not clear to me yet whether or not it would go to the special counsel or not. They could ask for him to be charged with obstruction as a number of people who have refused recently to testify, usually about Trump, uh, have been charged. This is what Steve Bannon was criminally convicted of recently. Yeah, and Peter Navarro was charged with it, and all these people have been charged with it. So I, I think it's very plausible that, uh, that they'll ask him to do this. I mean, I think there's another thing they're up to here. One of the there was an article in Politico this week about Hunter Biden's defiant press availability outside the Capitol, you know, like a mere several minutes walk from where he was supposed to be giving that uh, that interview uh, behind closed doors. And what the Politico article said was that Hunter's team feels that Joe Biden is not responding aggressively enough to the accusations about Hunter and Joe. That, you know, the, the Republicans are trying to impeach the president over this and that the, the president is being too quiet. And they, they basically they feel that the president is being disserved by his own political team by not having a more aggressive response and that they are trying to help his father out by being louder um, and by providing a, a more robust defense. And, you know, the like the biggest Democratic fanboys are out there on Twitter talking about, you know, Hunter's Hunter's been wronged and he has a right to defend himself and that sort of thing. But what Hunter is basically doing here is, you know, it seems to me like in this tax case in L.A., the worst possible thing for Hunter is for a jury to get that case and look at it as a garden variety tax evasion case about some rich guy who had lots of money and for years just chose not to send it to the government and lied a whole bunch of ways along the way um, in order to evade these taxes that he owed. Um, What Hunter benefits from is the more people see this as a political trial the more likely he's able to polarize it in a partisan way and convince people that, you know, really the charges against Hunter are a way of, of you know, they're a Republican dirty trick against Democrats and they're a way of trying to get at Joe Biden. And you know, we shouldn't tolerate that, that, you know, he really benefits from turning this into a political story. I don't think his father benefits from it turning into a political story. I think his father is much better off if it's a if it's a garden variety criminal trial. Now, Joe Biden has, you know, obviously a decades long record of of indulgence related to Hunter. And I certainly understand the very difficult position he's been put in over and over again by his son's behavior. But it seems to me like, you know, a key part of the strategy here is basically to make this as political a story as possible. And it seems like that could help Hunter in the narrow context of having to defend this criminal case in court, although it's, you know, as a, as a Democrat, it really it really irritates me because it's not good for the party. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that in a way, and I don't think this is a, uh, 
a comparison that's going to endear me to people. I think he's doing very much what Trump is doing with his cases all over the place, uh, calling a lot about how they're political and illegitimate and that type of thing. Now, the truth is the gun case is complete chicken shit, but the tax case is absolutely uh, the real deal. That's something that, you know, if you get struck by the lightning that is IRS deciding to select you out to investigate you, you'll absolutely get charged based on that stuff and you'll absolutely go to jail on that stuff. Uh, so uh, it's not a political case to that extent. Uh, the way it's been handled might be political, but uh, yeah, you're right. He, he's trying to, to taint the jury pool and he's trying to hope uh, that it'll help not just these cases, but also, you know, possible future cases under a hypothetical Trump administration. And that's why it would not surprise me if you wind up uh, with some parallel gag order proceedings against Hunter Biden. Oh, interesting. With the judge here in Los Angeles saying, look, look, OK, get off the Capitol steps, stop giving press conferences, stop talking about the case. But wouldn't what he did on the Capitol steps, as, as irritating as I found it, wouldn't that be pretty squarely within the realm of First Amendment protected speech to go out there and say, you know, this is political, blah, blah, blah? Yeah, it depends on to what extent he starts talking about witnesses or the or the special counsel or that type of thing. But I don't think the judge is going to like it. I think your instinct is right, Josh, though, that to the extent he he actually sincerely has opinions about what his dad should be doing politically, that they're terrible. Uh, I think the notion that uh, Joe Biden can improve things by engaging in discussions of, you know, the case against his son and how it's political, I think that's a terrible idea. Joe Biden's been skating on, I love my crooked drug addict son. And that's something that resonates with, with plenty of people. And why would you possibly go further than that? Yeah. I think we actually need to leave it there for this episode, Ken, even though we we have lots more news to discuss. And as, as I said at the top, we're, we're going to come out twice this week. There's going to be another episode later this week. We're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani. But Josh, uh, yes, I want to talk about Rudy Giuliani. We all want to talk about Rudy Giuliani. Look, <sighs> that, I wake up in the morning wanting to talk about Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Ru Rudy Giuliani, of course, had a, you know, a nine figure judgment award against him in this defamation case. We'll talk about that on Thursday. We're, we're going to talk some actually about the, the Ivy League college presidents and the trouble they got themselves into. There, there's a, a narrow angle here uh, that is within our ambit for the show, which has to do with how you should prepare if you're going to go before a, a hostile congressional proceeding and you are not a criminal defendant. Um, we talk a lot about how, you know, criminal defendants need to have an eye on, on their legal issues when doing PR. The, sort of the other thing happened here. You need, you need to have your eye squarely on PR when what you're doing is, is really a PR matter. Anyway, so we'll talk about those things later this week. We'll have updates on, on the cases we talked about, if news breaks in between now and then. Uh, and we'd also like your questions. Uh, it's, you know, the, we're coming up on the end of the year. If you have questions about everything that's happened this year, you need Ken's guidance on those. Please send them in here. Uh, Ken, what's the email address if people have questions they want to send in for the show? It is ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. Yes, that's right. ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. Please uh, send those to ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. If you can send them by Wednesday morning, we will have those in time for our second taping this week. Uh, and we'll be back with you in just a few days. Uh, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. And again, we'll be back later this week. See you next time.